wait for this to populate a little bit and see if we get some people. Pet peeve of mine. People with really loud motorcycles. Jeez. You know what's most concerning is when you get people with really loud motorcycles who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's like they never got over it. Yeah. I went one day because, you know, I bought a Tesla and my neighbor was grilling me because, you know, he's like a, like he's a motorcycle guy and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. And I'm like, sorry. I'm like, dude, my freaking car will dust probably one of your motorcycles. And I'm like... I'm like, why would, why would, like, it's just kind of like being inflammatory. And I'm like, why? Because I have a Tesla, because I have a car that drives itself, like, at least, like, three quarters of the time, if not more. Like, what's, I'm supposed to be sorry for that? I'm supposed to be sorry for progress? You know, that's one thing that's interesting, is that people will be like, oh, you know, now that's awesome that you're socially conscious that you bought a Tesla. I'm like, um, actually, actually... I, although I think that's cool, I think it's great that we're moving away from, you know, um, like, like, uh, petroleum or whatever, whatever you call it, uh, carbon based, uh, energy systems. Although I think that's cool. Um, I got a Tesla because it's a better car. You don't even know that's that. Why do you think their stock is going up so high? It's just because their cars are just amazing. And so I, I test drove one and I was like, geez, this is just ridiculous. Like I'm going to have to make this move sooner. And then they talk about the battery life going up to 300 miles per charge. And I'm like, okay. And then it's like, uh, you don't have maintenance on a Tesla. Like uh, you don't have like, since it's regenerative braking, you don't have to change the brakes probably until a hundred thousand miles or more, depending on how you drive it, how I drive it. It's like, I use a regenerative braking for pretty much everything. So I, I can imagine I should be able to extend it beyond a hundred thousand miles. I don't have to change the brake fluid, I don't think. Uh, I don't have to change um, the oil. It's not like oil changes, transmission flushes, any of that stuff. The only thing that I have to change is the wiper fluid or like at least refill that. That's the extent of it. So I'm like thinking, if I want to be productive in my life, would it make sense for me to have a engine that's really good at producing heat uh, uh, like as my source of transportation or have something that has like that's directly meant to like where the engine it seems to be more compatible with like making an automobile travel which one seems to be more efficient for me if i want to like succeed in life I'm like well it's a no-brainer i got to get a tesla i'm going to save so much time and money in the long haul probably in the short term because like i don't have to worry about my car in so many regards and the batteries last a long time and they're designed i think the last like half a million miles. And I think the motors are supposed to, they're, they're designed to last a million miles. I'm like, Hmm, I don't get it. And then when I see, you still see people driving in their motorcycles. I'm like, I can't wait till 20 years from now. Cause I'm assuming, because most of those people are usually like over 50, they're 50 plus. And they love doing that here. Hey, look at me. I'm in my really loud Harley Davidson. I guess I still haven't gotten over this fact that I want to have people pay attention to me. And I'm like, Phew. I like being in a Tesla where it's just like, I'm just like, people don't even, yeah, it's like nobody even hears you, bro. Nobody's even paying attention to you. So if you're on the fence about buying a Tesla, um, if you can afford it, which is, I mean, if you can hold a job together, you should be able to afford a Model 3, at least at like an introductory version. I got the performance version and I'm like, uh, this is overkill. I regretted it. I still regret it. I shouldn't have done it because it's like 
all that juice is unnecessary if you're living in a little on a little island where I'm living. I guess if one day if I move back down to uh, the mainland U.S., I'll maybe I guess I'll, I won't regret it. But I don't think I'd be moving to a big city anyway. So what would it matter? Uh, so I mean, if if you're if you're concerned about um, whether the Tesla is more environmentally friendly or not, you're looking at the irrelevant part of the picture. It's just a better car by a wide margin. There's some inconvenience factors to it as it relates to infrastructures and whatnot, but um, Tesla's a way to go. It's just, it's way better. Anybody who's ridden in the Tesla with me, they're just like, uh, well, this is a lot better. <laughs> like, I don't want to drive my other cars anymore. I'm, it's like, once you try that form of technology, you're like, do I really want to like actually, like, this is another thing. You drive a Tesla, you stop at a stop sign, right? And you don't have to touch the gas. Because the regenerative braking stops for you, and then it just like then the car automatically holds the brake for you, and when you're and so you don't have to like if you're at a stop sign or at a stoplight for a long time, you don't have to have your foot on the brake. Yeah. It just does it for you. Then from there the light turns green, and then you're like, okay, I'll choose to step on it. But it also has the feature of like okay that it'll stop at stoplights on its own for you already. It already has that much of a self-driving capability. I'm like, damn, I'm supposed to be sorry for that. That's wild. Yeah. That's that's insane. I feel sorry for myself. I have to focus on the gas. That's what I mean. That's why we got we got to get our hustle on, man, so we can actually everybody end up rolling into Tesla. But on my end, it's like I've knowing what I know now, I would have just gotten one of the introductory models with the self-driving capability. I wouldn't even gotten the dual. I guess the dual motor is nice because in case one fails and you have a backup motor and the car can still run. But um, with that said, I don't think that. I mean, it seems pretty reliable. That's an amazing car. Uh, never mind the fact that it's like yeah, it's. It's better for the environment for sure. You're supporting supporting a company, and uh, a company just in general that's more concerned about where we are going environmentally. But it's just it's superior in just about every way. I'm on the list for the Tesla truck. Uh, I'm definitely getting the Tesla truck because it just looks like it's going to be uh, amazing. So I'm on the list for that, and I think after that I'll be pretty much done making acquisitions on automobiles probably for the next I'd guess like ten years. I don't think I'd need anything else. So yeah, if you're if you're on the fence about a Tesla, I would strongly recommend uh, making that decision. Not just because you're concerned about the environment or you're trying to like virtue signal and show people like, hey, look, I'm environmentally conscious. It's like no, it's just they're just awesome. It's just it's just an awesome automobile. People who hate on Elon really, it it just tells me that you can do no right in this world. You just can't. It's like, He's a billionaire. Oh my god. And I'm like. Shouldn't a guy like that get rewarded billions of dollars? Shouldn't he? It's like he went through all those problems to get that car built. There's a lot of people that were trying to build an electric vehicle, and he's the only one that succeeded. It's like, shouldn't we kind of like compensate individuals like that that are pushing us to a type one type of civilization? I mean, wouldn't that make sense? Yeah, I, that, but just the cars alone. But yeah, never mind the fact that he's like doing all the other things he's doing. It's like, shouldn't that person be incentivized? Shouldn't, isn't it wise that we give a person like that our resources instead of, and, and, I'm, and I'm not bagging government, but I mean, government doesn't do things that great. They're not that economical by what they do. And people really aren't that motivated oftentimes to go to work for the government. I've seen some pretty, but I mean, you see lazy people in the free market, people that operate in the free market and not. But I think that uh, if you have somebody like Elon Musk, I think it's good to give a person like that executive authority to make like uh, like the decisions that he makes. I think it's it's good for, for society. 
it still amazes me how many people hate on him though. It's incredible to me. I, I like I I must I was like, okay, this guy's gotta be foolproof. It's like he's over there like working, you know, hundred plus hour weeks. It's, it's like back to back to back to back to back, trying to make this thing work. And even then, people still find it within themselves to hate on him. Even when you look at this whole thing with Jeff Bezos and you have people like like at, at his front uh <laughs> at his the front door of his house in Seattle and they're like oh let's put a guillotine outside of his house you're thinking okay so let's say if Jeff Bezos decided to give all 200 billion dollars of his money away to charity all of it he'd be a good guy and then people would be fed for probably about a week they'd probably feed themselves for a week and considering their spending habits they'd be satisfied for about a week and then Jeff Bezos would just be broke that's pretty much what it would be Right. So it's kind of like, so you guys want him, like, how do you win in this world is a question. Can you really be successful? Especially when you, when you see one side and I can understand there's people that abuse their power and, and whatnot, but Jeff Bezos brings things to the table. He brings legit stuff to the table. Even Bill Gates as demonized as he is. I disagree with the way he looks at health. I mean, Jesus, that guy clearly, I don't think he understands very much about health. I don't think he understands anything about health personally. I think it's like he's he uh, he thinks that the tertiary sick care system that has failed him also should uh, like th- that he thinks that it, that it that it works to him when it's like there's so much evidence that it doesn't and it hasn't worked for him personally and even though he still believes in it it's wild it's insane I think he dropped six hundred and fifty million dollars on this coronavirus effort and it's like bro you could have spent that money preemptively trying to get people to like live healthier lifestyles or create new uh, regenerative agriculture systems that help reduce uh, the, 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 like the intoxication of the planet. I mean, wouldn't that be a wise thing to do to take those $650 million and put it into regenerative ag and try and figure that out? I mean, there's, it's like, there's plenty of evidence to support that, you know, that there's regenerative forms of agriculture that could be really beneficial. So I could see the criticisms that go towards him and Jeff Bezos as well. Elon, I'm just like, I mean, I guess the only criticism I have for him is that he likes, it seems like he likes sci-fi movies too much and like anime cartoons. And I'm like, I feel like it's corroding his physiology, like spending his free time doing that instead of getting out into nature and connecting. I think that would probably be a wiser path for him if he wants to stay productive. I don't know that like, oh, yeah, I'm off, I'm, I'm, I have off time. Let me sit there and watch a movie and expose myself to more blue light. Oh, that's great. Um, I know there's people that have problems with him putting satellites up in space and then having internet everywhere. But I'm like, if I have a high redox potential, how damaging is that going to be? That's the question. It's hard to say, man. It's difficult. But nonetheless, I, I think that uh, there's so many people out there that are like well-intended that make no contributions, like zero. Actually, they make negative contributions because they typically spend time just getting high, um, like drunk, arguing, like belittling others online. And uh, they think they're well-intended. And then you look at somebody like uh, like Elon Musk, who's well-intended, who's actually doing something. And it's like, and you just can't win in this world. And people are just like, hey, you know what? If you have haters, you should be happy about it. And I'm like, that, that's not a way to live your life. It's like, I'm not happy about having haters. It's not good. It's not, you don't flourish a functional society with haters in it, plain and simple. It's like people need to know their place in the universe 
and then do the best that they can relative to where they're at. It's just, it's just such a brutal thing to have to accept for many with the egos that they possess. Like that whole principle of equality. And, and keep this in mind, guys. I'm, I'm pro- I may repeat myself on certain, some of these podcasts because we're putting some up and some that and others not because we have technical difficulties. So bear with me on that. Um, what was I about to talk about, Pablo? What was it? Uh, equality. Yeah, equality. Um, it's the perception of equality that that seems to be most of the problem. Like I, I've, I've, I'm coming to reconcile with the amount when I first became a trainer. Everything was about calories in versus calories out, like abstaining from consuming calories. And then I've at, at about year three or year four, I started getting into fasting. And now I'm year 14, 15, and I'm kind of mixing caloric restrictions, uh, vegan protocols, carnivore diet protocols, uh, fruitarium protocols. I'm mixing them all together because they all seem to work out pretty well. And... Uh, Essentially, what I'm what I'm gathering from this is that we can all look a lot better and function much better, and we don't really need that much in order to be able to function. And most of the time, when people are like angry about something, it's usually about something that's not really that relevant. It's like, should you really be angry about that? Should you really be angry about the other? It's like they're they're angry about the wrong things. Like somebody gets knee surgery, they're like. Oh, that poor person just hurt their knee and they're never asked, well, what was that person doing? What led them to getting that knee surgery? Were they consuming grains in high quantities that caused bloating in their intestinal tract that then caused poor intra-abdominal pressure that, that weakened their intra-abdominal pressure that then led them to have hip instability, which then led them to have knee instability, an incapacity to utilize their slings that then led them to the knee surgery. Like do, do people ask questions about that? It, it it seems like people just think about like crises. Oh, the, oh, there's a there's some kind of a a complete crisis. Let's only focus. Let's focus on this only when it's problematic. You know what's interesting is I, I I've uh, been working with some people in business, and you know, like as the business evolves, you have to make some decisions in terms of what you have to do and bring new specialists in. And one of the specialists that came in, uh, who happened to help me with a, a certain part of it. Uh, I was explaining where my position was in my industry and the things that I wasn't willing to compromise uh, w- within my company. And he's like, man, what happened? Like, what happened? You're talking like if, you know, something really bad happened. So what was the incident? And I'm like, bro, there's no incident. Why do I need to have some crazy incident to like say, hey, I, why can't I get ahead of a problem? And, and, and like, why do I have to be reactionary? Really what it comes to, like, there was never, I've never really had like a crazy incident happen like where somebody really got hurt or somebody or something like that. It's like, you can do something preemptively to prevent problems. And that's my mentality when it comes to things. And when I look at people and the things that they get mad about, it's kind of like, you know, there's plenty of things to get mad about, lots of things to get mad about. But even if you do get mad about it, what's the, how, how long are you going to be angry for? And it just seems like right now people have been angry for a long time. They're just angry. And they're just like, Let's angrily just hope to get a better planet. Let's just, let's just see if, if we channel anger. Now, don't get me wrong. Like I've used anger as a means to drive, to, as, as a motive to get me to want to tackle problems. Anger has driven me to want to get to certain places. But for most people, anger just triggers more anger and more inactivity. So maybe it's not the anger. Maybe it's more the, the individuals that are getting angry. 
Maybe that's the problem. Who knows? But um, as it relates to me and how I see the, the, the world, I just see that like things are much simpler than what most people would, would consider. And, and this whole idea of equality is kind of an illusion. You can't have equality because how do you quantify equality? It's like if we all make equal money, the exact same amount of money, but then one person moves better than the other. One person has a higher IQ than the other. One person has uh, better uh, emotional intelligence than, than another. How do, we, how do we quantify equality? That we're, and that's even like recently, because everything's obviously getting very political right now because the election's coming up. And then like you have the most polarizing figure that we've probably ever had as a president. It's like, so you're, you're what was I going to get into? Come on, Naudi. What was I going to get into, bro? What was it? Because it was a good one. What was it? What was I talking about? Uh, oh, you, you, right now you're getting constitutionalists. People that are like, you know, the Constitution was just great and all that. And it's like one of the first things that are said that, that all men are created equal. And you're like, under what metric? What metrics are you utilizing to find out that all or to, to, to like determine that all men are created equal? That's irrelevant. It's like not all men are created. Not humans aren't created equal. It's like there's there's competition intrinsically in nature that gives some organisms an advantage and other organisms a disadvantage. What? I'm like, and so people like look at the Constitution and they swear by the Constitution. I'm like, there's so much ambiguity and non-metric based values in the Constitution, and I'm like, that's why it has to keep changing. And and I guess that's a part of the Constitution that made it relevant is that they enabled it to to keep changing so they could uh, amend it. But uh, with that said, um, obviously you can't quantify everything. Not all aspects of life can be quantified. But but equality is one of those things where I, that can be quantified. And when you try and quantify equality, you begin to find out that some people are better. Everybody's better at something. And, and, and everybody's better at other things, right? No, nobody is better at everything than somebody else. You're, somebody's probably always going to have something over somebody else. I mean, barring some freak or, or some unusual instance, there's going to be some things that people are going to be better at. By the time they turn 40, they're going to develop some kind of a specific skill where they'll be better at, some, at something than somebody else. Whether that is precious or not is determined by where we're at technologically as a species so it's like um that idea of equality is just it's mind-blowing and to think that people hate on you know a guy going back to this whole thing with jeff bezos and elon musk it's like people hate on these guys because they're like we want equality man we want equality and it's like the world isn't equal should we if we if, if we just started saying let's give everybody universal basic income what's that going to turn our society into it's like we have to like dab. We have to like, if we have UBI, people aren't going to want to work at some point. Like socialism is good for short-term solutions, but long-term, when people start start losing their motive and they're like, you know, I really don't have to be at work because the government's going to kind of take care of things. That's when the society crumbles. I would get. I would guess that that's the case. I would wager based upon what I've researched, which isn't like super extensive, but. Based upon what I researched, like a short-term, a short-term solution through socialism is good, and the reason that a short-term solution through socialism is good uh, is because you know sometimes people need help, and that's and just so they can like keep going. Companies need help, like Uber. I believe 
they haven't made any profit, and but the government is propping them up and giving employment to many uh, many people out there. I've known a lot of people who've, uh, who've made a living through Uber and has gotten them through some tough times, and that's a government-subsidized corporation. So sometimes socialism does need to come in to step in to either help the people or corporations so that way they can keep employment and an economy going. But in this situation, if we do, I believe in universal basic income, the part that's problematic to me is that when people choose to not work anymore, do we have enough machine automation to account for the lack of people wanting to work when they need to work? That's really, that's the question. I think that the main thing that we could get out of UBI is people could maybe give somebody else a guilt trip because they're not working. And maybe the, the, the shame of it would make somebody want to work more. But yeah, that, that, that was an interesting, I, who would have thought that a guy riding a Harley Davidson or a loud motorcycle. What I was not supposed to start this podcast uh, with this uh, rhetoric, I guess, or with this uh, topic in mind, but a guy in a Harley Davidson prompted that. Who would have thought? Well, it's kind of hard, like we were talking about earlier. It's 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 hard because it's it's difficult for people to know what they should know as opposed to what they want to know. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And that's that, when we were discussing that before. And I was like, you know what, maybe we should talk about this on the podcast. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough when you're, when you're an influencer, like on social media or whatever, it's difficult because you're thinking, um, like I want people to engage with what I have to say, but most of the time people, they want you to talk about, I guess right now I'm not really, at least with my direct community, I think people just want to hear what I talk about. So then they're like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to maybe talk about. These are the things that I want to entertain. So I think it's kind of changing in my circumstance. But unfortunately, people don't know what to point at and say, you know what, this is what I need to learn. Like when I, when I, and I, I, I think, uh, I guess it depends. I guess it depends at what stage you're at in your life. Because when I was, I think I was, I had to have been like 25, 26 when I first discovered Jock, Jock Fresco. Um, I didn't come in with a preconception of like, okay, uh, Jock, I want you to talk about these things so then I can interact with you on, on social media or whatever. Otherwise, I'm not going to interact with you. I was just like, this guy seems like he's much more intelligent than me in ways that seem relevant. So let me just hear him out. And I just started listening to him talk. And then at some point he had mentioned this whole idea of, you know, if, 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 what was it? He's like, if people met Albert Einstein, most of them would say, Hey, could I have your autograph? And then he's, he's like, uh, he's like, that's a fool's way of looking at it. He's like, if I met Albert Einstein, I'd be thinking, Hey, uh, what do you suggest that I research so I could think as well as you do? That's a much more adequate way to go at it. Like if you have aliens coming from outer space, it's like, you don't say we come in peace. It's like, they could eradicate us in two seconds. If they under, if they can understand how to get here, they could eradicate us very quickly. So I'm like thinking, okay, uh, it, I'm like, yeah, that, that makes sense. And that's where Jock was coming from. So then he also, uh, he proposed saying, instead of saying we come in peace, it's more like, uh, what should we ought to know? And then the alien from what Jock would have put it, he said, well, your brain is probably too small to harbor those types of thoughts. You're probably not advanced enough. It's like, what do you, if, we're, if, if that alien exists and we're quite literally, if we look at the differential in intelligence, the inequalities between our intelligence, it, it might be like those aliens are speaking to ants or it's the aliens speaking to us are the equivalent to us trying to talk to a colony of ants. 
you can have forms of communication, like build up, make a fire somewhere and be like, hey, you better not come over here. You're going to get burned. You can communicate something like that. Maybe put, put a little trench of water to communicate to them, hey, don't come to my picnic table or put some kind of a scent. You can communicate with them at a basic level. But how far is that communication going to go? People don't typically ask, what should I ought to know? And I think it's problematic. They don't ask, well, what, what direction should I take my thoughts? And it's not to say that they don't do that. I just think it's like at a certain point, they get indoctrinated and then eventually they're like, I don't want to learn. But I think these days for myself personally, at least, I'm starting to find that people aren't coming at me with that mentality as much anymore. They're kind of just one of the, they're finally getting to that point of saying, you know, what, what it's not even that I want want to ask questions at, uh, it's not that they have curiosities even about the body anymore. I think they just want general direction in life. Because I don't know, how, how many questions have I gotten right now that relate to biomechanics? None. Are there any, are we getting many questions at all or no? Yeah, you had someone asked what you thought about emotional intelligence, but that's... It exists, I guess. <laughs> there's some people that can read social cues. I think there's some people that are programmed to read facial biomechanics and physical biomechanics and then get like cues from people and then there's some individuals that have no idea how to like alter their own mechanics and as it relates to like interaction with people so i think if there are situations like that somebody you would somebody who doesn't have the capacity to control those things or be aware of those things would be somebody who doesn't have a high emotional intelligence um i think many times people who are emotionally uh i guess unintelligent are just lazy most of the time, I found that to be the case, especially people who are there, people who are like mathematical. I just generally tend to find that they're like, they feel that it's trivial to have to like, uh, like play in the middle with people or, or, or I guess like, uh, extend, extend yourself to where someone is at, at a given moment and, and bear with them as they like vent their frustrations or whatever it may be, or as, as they talk to you, they don't understand that. So like the mathematical mindset oftentimes isn't the most emotionally intelligent mindset, but oftentimes just for them, it's just that they're impatient. They can understand it. You just have to present the ideas in a certain way. But nonetheless, a socially awkward person that doesn't know how to touch somebody or I guess those are just like uh, Darwin, my dog, Darwin, he's emotionally unintelligent to the max. Bernie is like, he reads you like a book. He'll look at you and be like, where are you at? What's, are, are you happy, sad, mad? Hmm. Can we go play? Hmm. Should I be alert about something? He'll read like that. Darwin's just like, uh, I want to go chase a ball or something. Just throw something so I can chase after it. Anything. Just throw it and I will, I will retrieve that thing for you all day long. That's all he's thinking. And it's not to say that it's bad. I mean, it's like, it, it could be good for certain things, but it's like contextually speaking, Bernie, uh, his emotional intelligence seems to fit more of my circumstance better. I've, I've even said in the past where I'm like, you know, if I could find a good farm for Darwin, I might give him away to the right farmer. I'm not saying that I'll do that, but I'm just saying like, if, if I could find the right farmer, just because it's like my personality collides with his too much. And I don't like, I don't hold on to a dog. Like if I could find somebody to give my Jack Russell to a uh, fresco, it's like, he just wants to kill stuff all day. So if somebody had like a rat infestation and they're like, I have a problem with rats and foxes or whatever, and I need a good Jack Russell to help me deal with that. I'd be like, well, this guy is it because he is, he is a lethal killing machine. 
If I, if I unleash him over at the beach, he will just have crab after crab after crab dead and gone. So it's, I don't know, man. I, 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 emotional intelligence is needed, but you all, it's like, if you're emotionally unintelligent, like don't hold it against yourself that you're not emotionally unintelligent because, you know, you need socially uh, unintelligent people like myself to be loners for a while and figure out really complicated things. I'll say that. Like if you're a person who doesn't have lots of social intelligence and you're like, oh, I'm socially awkward, don't trip on that. I mean, work on it. Work to develop like good social awareness, like how to like, like how to like gesture uh, thoughts and, and, and emotions and whatnot, like work on it, but don't beat yourself up about it. Some, some of the most brilliant minds, I mean, Nikola Tessa was extremely brilliant, but very, you know, I guess socially inept. He, he wasn't the most charismatic individual. It's like he was hyper paranoid about a lot of things. So it, it just tells you that just because you don't have social intelligence doesn't mean that you can't like work on it or still be useful to society. In my in my situation, I tell people, hey, man, you better learn social intelligence so you can at least learn to, uh, I guess, kind of fit in to the confines of what I kind of like in the box that I kind of put people in. I kind of try and teach people to toe the line. And in order to do that, you have to be able to uh, display some levels of social intelligence or emotional intelligence, whatever you want to call it. I like just calling it social intelligence. I got a final kind of a question. Yep. Uh, for an HF practitioner who isn't confident with nuances in gait cycle in a sprint, what dynamic movement would you suggest trying to use as a test for that client or for a client? I gotta, let me think about that. I got to process that for a minute. Bro, do any movement. I, I'll just, I don't care if he, even if it's, I wouldn't, don't do a squat. I'll just tell you that. Don't do squats or deadlifts. Make it a non-sagittal movement and just watch and assess. Like I, I wasn't running gait protocols, gait cycle analysis, probably. When was it? I think it was, I'd guess like 2009, something like that. That's when I started like, but I went through like a whole, I went, I started as a trainer, I think 2005. It took me about like four or five years to finally like think, okay, maybe longer. It may have been later. It may have been like 2010, 2011. I mean, I didn't start really, I knew that gait was important, but I didn't actually really start like assessing it. So I didn't know really what to look at with gait for the longest time. So I just assessed what I could assess, man. Do the best that you can to assess things. Put somebody through an exercise and then get feedback. What I, what I managed to attract in my life were people who were in real dire straits, who happened to be really competent people in other things, and they really wanted to figure their body out. And so they would give me invaluable feedback. I would, I would work with people who were constantly in pain, who couldn't get out of pain, and they, just, and they were like, dude, I'll be your guinea pig. Just try and get me out of this bind because I don't want to end up in the surgery room. I don't want to end up going down the, 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 ha the hamster wheel or the, the merry-go-round of the medical system. I just don't want to be in it, bro. And so I'm like, a little bit of pressure. But they were, you know, fortunately, they were patient enough with me. And as time uh, passed, you know, I started seeing like the, the nuances of what types of movements hurt them and which ones didn't. And if there was a type of movement that hurt them that I knew needed to, to happen, I would try and find out why the pain was there. And so that's where I would experiment with certain things. 
When I look at mechanics, I see it like a binary thing. You can either move left, right, up, down, side to side. You can twist this way, twist that way, and every single joint on the body is going to follow those, uh, those um, I guess, trains of thought. It's, everything's going to operate from that. So the best thing I can just tell you is uh, test whatever you're going to test and do the best that you can to get the client through the exercise. And when you fail, don't beat yourself up about it. Maybe just try. The, the most difficult thing you can do as a trainer is find out how to scale somebody. What's the progressive path? Because everybody, you hear everybody talk about developing basic protocols for training. Like, oh, here's the fundamentals of what you want to know. You got to understand the basics. Everybody will say, you got to understand the basics, the basics. And so a squat is the basics. The, the, the squat as an exercise or the hinge or the deadlift is a basic exercise. And although it is to some degree, for you to actually find functionality by, to, for you to find functionality with a human being, it's not going to go through a squat. It has to go through something that relates to humans specifically that on a, on a more um, relatable level. And with humans, since we know that humans are walkers, runners and throwers as a priority with when it comes to their movement, meaning that they they reciprocate contralaterally. It means that they, that if you don't cater the basics around that, you're, go, you're going to take them to a place that's not going to be beneficial. That's my experience with it. And so, so long as you take the protocols that respect our evolution to some extent on a specific level that it, it relates to, to gait, it doesn't have to be the exact thing. You could put somebody through a contralateral step press, contralateral step pull, a transverse twist, a pendulum squat, or a pendulum swing lunge, a walking pendulum swing lunge. There's so many exercises that are out there. I'm going to develop an, and this is what I'm going to do too, guys, is I'm going to make an entire exercise. Uh, I already have one. I already have one on the website, but I'm going to make a new one that's going to be even better than the one that I have already. So I will have that up. I'm thinking at the beginning of next year. Maybe earlier, maybe earlier, but um, you have all these exercises at your disposal and all you have to do is try and get your clients through them the best that you can. And th there is no, there is no algorithm that re re replaces experience. It's just, there is, there is no like mathematical calculation that I could give you that's going to like override attaining experience. So I, it, it, that's a difficult question you asked me. And I think it's a good question, but the best thing I can tell you is to uh, do the best you can with what you're doing currently and, uh, and just keep adjusting the best you can. And don't beat yourself up about making mistakes because we all make mistakes in this. So um, I don't know if that answered the question, kind of. Did I go around it too much? I, I think basically speaking, just... I guess a lunge is good. You have to see where a person's at. And I don't know. Let's say if you, if you have a client and the person doesn't, isn't in pain, it's going to be really hard to determine what's going to be good for them because somebody might have like a, uh, an SI joint that's completely just dysfunctional, but they don't feel the pain there. You hear all, all the time about like pain specialists who are saying, you know, there's people with herniated discs that don't feel pain where their herniated disc is. And I'm like, and so, so there you go biomechanics and pain aren't correlated to one another. And it's like, no, probably what happened is they're not moving that herniated disc and they offset that. And so what they're doing is keeping that isometric while everything in the body is moving around that disc herniation. And while the body gets to move around that disc herniation, that they're never going to feel pain in that area. But if one day you take that said individual 
and then you try and extend the spine of where that disc herniation is, I bet you they'll report some kind of pain or they're going to get injured. So the whole thing is the body can compensate. So people will be like, well, I have a scoliosis and my back doesn't hurt. It's like, yeah, how long is your glute med and your IT band going to be able to hold that for until it is going to come around and become a problem? Pain scientists don't talk about these things. And even I went into that, I started studying the pain science because um, I have scripts that I've been writing uh, specifically to communicate uh, things about pain science. I'm going to do like, like really good productions that are going to explain these things. And I started researching it. I looked at some of the articles and I'm just like, oh, I get it. These people just seem, from what I can tell, they want to bring something new to the table. And it's relevant because, uh, but it is biomechanical. Because they'll say, well, not all aspects of pain are biomechanical. And I'm like, but when is there not a physical expression associated with the thought, right? We have micro expressions. Like the idea of having a poker face, you may have a poker face, but your pinky toe might twitch a little bit anytime that you're playing poker. And since your shoes can cover up the pinky toe, you, your opponents would never know that you're, what's going on, the way that you express the physicality of that. So to say that, that, uh, that pain is not biomechanically rooted or in, that biomechanics is not involved is highly, it's highly irresponsible when you consider that body language is so tight, is so tightly knit with behavior on a general basis that it's like, it's impossible to ignore that. You, you have, you can't just like dismiss that, that body language doesn't tie into pain or that body language doesn't tie into thoughts. So if body language ties into thoughts and body, uh, body language is biomechanics, when, more fun, when you fundamentally root it deeper, then every aspect of pain relates to biomechanics in some way, shape, or form because your thoughts express in-depth physical movements. That's how, that's how biology has existed for probably, what, what, billions of years now? That if there's an impulse, you react by moving, it's like thoughts generally trigger some kind of a movement somewhere. Energy or whatever it is, things have to move somewhere. Things move in the body, plainly speaking. So to assume that biomechanics, that movement is not associated with pain is ridiculous because the body's always, you always have blood pumping through your body, right? It's, it's like, that's a form of hydraulic compression. <laughs> How do you ignore that? If, if your heart is pretty much a muscle of some sort, and it's pumping blood, and then your thoughts correlate to your heart, and that thing is moving, how do you not correlate biomechanics? Is it because you, you don't know how to influence the biomechanics of your heart? Is, is that maybe the, the case? Is it a lack of coordination? I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud here. I don't know if anything that I'm saying is making sense, and if it's not, I'm doing the best that I can, guys. What, I'm sure they, I'm seeing you write up a storm over there, Pablo, so what, what do these guys got for me? Uh, well, kind of relating back to someone and their client as far as gait goes, uh, someone asked how often someone should test themselves in terms of overcoming deeper-rooted uh, dysfunctions, like going for a run or, or, or dynamics. <laughs> Man. It's hard, hard to really pinpoint, but yeah, I, I, this, this is a, you know why I make the big bucks? And I don't really make that many big bucks. We're working on that. We're working on getting the company bigger. But you know why I make the big bucks, guys? Because I'm trying to work out those details so I can give you a clear answer to that. But right as it is right now, I don't have a clear answer. And you have to like, the reason that you'll make the big bucks if you are willing to go through those processes and not injure yourself is because you're going through those processes. And if you don't injure yourself, you're more valuable than the next person. 
So the whole thing is, I don't have a clear answer for that. When do you test it? I don't know, man. If, if, if you feel any kind of pain, then you probably shouldn't be testing it. If you don't feel pain, then that might be a, a time where you can test it and be like, okay, where am I at? So if you're in pain, I probably wouldn't test it. But so many times, you know, if you're dumping cortisol in your body and creating an anti-inflammatory response, you may not be in pain because you're just stressed out of your mind while your body is actually in an inflammatory state saying, help, don't move. So it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to determine that. It's like, are you going through a physical stage of denial because you have so much cortisol pumping through your body because you like to have cortisol pumping through your body? So it's hard to, it's, it's hard to determine that because I've met people who are extremely stressed out who go out for runs and say, I'm completely fine. And I'm like, well, I, can al- I also notice how anxious you are and how like riled up you get. And I'm thinking, I can't help but think that at some level you are your cortisol is getting you through the trauma. It's like, it's helping you get by through these difficult times. So that's, that's, I guess my, uh, my general take on that. It's, it's that it's hard to determine. I I would say this, this is what I would say. Go somewhere for a while. And I, I, I struggle with this guys because I still have to run a business and I'm still trying to, I'm at a stage where I have to code biomechanics if I want to get past my current state, my current condition. So I have to like actually figure things out. Like my brain is literally saying, now you can't just sit down and tune into the boredom anymore. You can't cavitate your way out of this one, bud. You actually have to understand what you're doing now. And I'm like, oh man, I just used to like to just be able to sit there and try and meditate on what I need to do and then cavitate my way out of my situations. And I was like, nope, you understand how deep the spiral goes now, homie. It's about time you get past this and you start getting up off your butt and making this work. So I'm like, okay, here we go. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this, but let me give it a shot. That's where I'm at. But before I got to that stage, what I had to do is I had to sit down, do absolutely nothing, eat very little, go on a caloric deficit, a strong caloric deficit, do the right types of fasting protocols and do absolutely nothing. Quite literally do nothing. And then what, when I did that, when I've done that, I end up feeling terrible. When I, when I get the cortisol, ugh. come on guy. When I get the cortisol out of my system, I then get to experience what I really feel like. And what I really feel like is an anxious mess. And then I have to sit there and deal with it. And, and that's when, when you may go down that path of going through a, like, you know, extreme anxiety, uncontrollable anxiety. And then you have to sit there and be like, okay, bro, just understand it's your body. It's your hormones are regulating. Your body is trying to find the endogenous production of the right hormones to keep you at a baseline. Just sit there and deal with it. Do the best that you can. Like, okay, I'm going all right. I'm going all right. I'll go all right. Bro, I I don't know if I can control this. I need to go eat something. I need something to cope. Let me go, whatever. I'll go take a hit of weed or something. Okay. Then I'm like, okay. I go back to the path of coping for a while. And then eventually I end up uh, going back to the same place. I restrict how much I eat. I step away from the problems. And I just, I deal with my uncontrollable anxiety it's like a back and forth until I eventually get to that point where I'm like, oh, okay, look, now I'm not, I'm not producing uh, 
the, the cord, I'm, I'm okay with not producing cortisol anymore because now I'm genuinely not in an inflammatory state and I can deal with my problems now. Okay. Like it takes a long time to get to that point because in many instances, people's cortisol will lie, will enable them to lie to themselves. It will suppress pain. The cortisol production, you get these motivational speakers that are telling you, oh yeah, just push right on through it, push right on through it. I got to wake up at six in the morning and run for uh, six miles or seven miles every day just so I can get through my day. Why? Because in the morning, especially when they go out for do these runs is when they're going to secrete the most cortisol and that cortisol dump is what helps them get through their day. So when you're when you when you hear these motivational types or these these public figures talking about, you know, you got to just go run. Oh, and if you just, you know, running a, 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 you know, an ultra marathon or running 200 miles, you can do it. You know, you just got to start slow and then work your way up. That's nonsense. Most people can't do that. There's a physical barrier. There's a physical limitation. And uh, if those people can get through it, I guess they speak from their personal experience of being able to like do things physically. But even then, eventually they break down. They eventually break down and they have to like stop and say, okay, I need to reevaluate things. But pain is, is a really complicated thing just because stress is involved with it, values are involved with it, mechanics are clearly involved with it. Um, so it's hard to say. But I'll say that if you don't have a problem managing your anxiety, which I would highly doubt considering how we function uh, uh, as a species um, and, and the things that we do. Uh, but let's say if you do have that figured out, then I would say if you're not feeling pain, and, and you don't feel like anything's going to tear or get damaged, then that would, should give you the opportunity to test your mechanics, to go out and like say, okay, I'm going to go for a jog and see how I feel. But I would try and get it on video. I would just try and really tune into what you're doing at that moment because that's what I do as well. I'm just like, okay, where am I at? Did I feel this? Because if you're trying to correct your mechanics and you found out that you need to do a certain movement because you saw it with Usain Bolt or Barry Sanders or Floyd Mayweather or whatever, and you're like, every time I would do, I try doing that movement, like something twinges or I feel a little pain or an ache. The next time you do that same movement, if you don't feel that ache or a pain, there's a, a decent chance that you did something to correct that problem and that you're progressing. If you keep feeling that same problem, then obviously you're, you need to find out what the solution for that problem is. So I don't know. That's some insight. I don't even know if it makes sense as, as, as I, as I go, go along, are these guys, are they, are they getting, making sense out of all yeah, this? Thanks for such a great in-depth answer. Okay, cool. I'm just yeah, making sure. Two questions at the same time. So that was pretty good. Okay, so cool. How do you know you're actually going through like a progressive destruction of your dysfunctions, I guess, and not hurting yourself? How do you know? <laughs> Woo, jeez, man. How do you know? That, that, and guess what? It's like, this is, this. so the thing is, the people that, that go through the process, the uncomfortable process of pursuing the unknowns, ultimately end up being the people that uh, make most of the money in the world. That's how it works. It's like, if, you, if you're the person that puts in the work to figure that out, then guess what? You get to make all the cashola. That's how it is. You're the one that ends up becoming the most valuable. If you're going through that process and other people aren't in about five to 10 years, you're going to be the one, uh, like being perceived as valuable. People perceive me as valuable, not because I understand biomechanics, but because I'm staring really ugly problems in their face and I'm trying to do something about it. That's so 
I, I don't have a clear answer for you. How do you know? You have to, at some level, you have to see it, but this is the problem. What do you, what's, what's the base point? Let, let me put it this way. Prior to 2012, 2013, 2014, you never saw before and afters of people's posture. Never saw them. Why? Because nobody could really conceive of what a, like a functional posture, like standing neutral posture looked like. I strongly feel based upon what I've seen on social media and everybody that I studied that I kind of, to some degree, had to push that and say, look, this is what a good posture is. Like, this is a good posture. And I'm like, I know it's not a perfect posture. I know it comes with a bunch of imbalances. The further I go into understanding this, I'm like, it wasn't good. It's like, the deeper I go into it, I'm like, damn, I nailed that. Like, I nailed certain elements of that. There's some parts that I'm still missing, but I'm like, Oof, I nailed that. Like I actually did a really good job in terms of figuring that out. I got lucky. I got extremely lucky. But um, how do we make the determination as to what good posture is from not? H- how do we do that? Like what's the benchmark? For me, my benchmark was like, okay, I watched athletes move and I tried to find the most common denominators of what athletes did. They tend to rotate in certain ways in certain sequential uh, manners that enable like uh, a whip motion to happen in the body. And so I'm like, okay, I picked up on those tendencies a long time ago and that helped me get to results. Um, I did lots of myofascial release on my body. And fortunately, I think it kind of like pushed me into the direction of figuring those things out. I started like looking in the mirror and saying, you know, are my hips supposed to be there? Is that supposed to be there or is it not? And so I tested, I tested, I tested and I'm like, I don't know if they're supposed to be there or not. But, you know, but then I figured this out and yes, they are, but I don't know if they're supposed to be there or not. Uh, I guess they should be. So the whole thing is what you're at, what you're, what you guys are asking me in terms of the questions are precisely the problem. These are the things I deal with every single day. You're dealing with the exact problem that I'm talking about. And the reason that people come to my courses is because they're like, people don't come to my course because be like, Oh, look, man, like you're supposed to bend your knee laterally. You're supposed to bow out your knees when you run. And so you just do that until the end of time. And then you're automatically going to start moving better. People don't come to me with that. People who come to me, come to me asking the, looking for answers to the questions, the diff, the most difficult questions that relate to trying to fix problems. So how do you know you're right? I mean, assess posture, assess your movement, look at your, look, assess your gait cycle, actually film it, look at it in slow motion. And it's like the, the closer it is, I guess this is your answer. The closer your movement is to a Barry Sanders or a Usain Bolt, the closer you are towards the progress. If you have any inflammatory problems, some skin issues, or you have poor digestion, or you're not sleeping well, those are all indicators that you're probably not doing the right things. So really there's, there's ways to quantify progress. And as it relates to things on a biomechanical scale, the further you are from throwing a punch like Canelo or Floyd Mayweather or a Holyfield or somebody like that, uh, or, and the further you are from, uh, you know, jumping like LeBron James or moving like LeBron James or having the physical awareness, the further you are from looking like LeBron James. Like if you see this narrow nose of mine, this is a dysfunction. This is not good. I cannot breathe through this airway. I need a wider, I need a wider nose. This nose, it needs to be probably two to three times wider than what it is. If I want to have an accurate, how would I put it? Uh, A worthwhile air intake through my nose. I need to be able to breathe more oxygen, or I guess I'm going to have to learn to metabolize more CO2 because I can't get in, get in enough oxygen, but I'm not going to accept that. But when I look at LeBron James's face and I look at my face, 
I'm like, um, there's something wrong with me and there's lots of things right with him. So the further I am from looking like a guy like that or a lot of the pro athletes that I see, the further that my body language is or my demeanor is from one of these people as it relates to how they deal with... Like if you look at NBA players, yeah, you know, we just had to play defense and, you know, just play good basketball. That's pretty much all we had to do. Yeah, you know, you just have to go over there and, uh, you know, I, I, I had to feed my teammates the ball and, 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 you know, and you just, you know, you just institute the pass and you follow the game plan and, and then you end up with a loss. You're like, yeah, we lost, you know, we could have, we could have done better with this, uh, with this, uh, game. You know, we really got to step it up next time. Yeah. This is typically what you'll see NBA players. Like they're real calm and stoic typically. I mean, does it mean that you, that you should follow them all the way around? No. I mean, look at how they train. They have no idea what they're doing with their training. They listen to people. And I, and I don't mean to be condescending to people that are in the strength and conditioning field, but these are some of, if, if you, if you spend your time training people who already move well, you're not going to learn what it means to take somebody who doesn't know how to move well and help them move well. So meaning that if, if you don't know how to take somebody who doesn't move well, which most strength and conditioning coaches don't move well, they're never going to get to that professional athlete status until you can take a degenerate and take and turn that person into a regenerate. You're not going to like, how would I put it? You're, you're never going to get to that stage. And that's what I've been focusing on. So there's many aspects of competence that you can look at. Like I, I, I listened to Sam Harris speak because he's an intellectual and I'm thinking, do I communicate at the level of a Sam Harris? No. So I'm like, okay, well, there's an example of somebody I should probably be able to speak like. I'm like, he seems to speak pretty well. He, the way he punctuates sentences, I think he's almost a little, he tries to be too stoic, which I'm not a big fan of. Um, I think it's like detrimental to his health to be so stoic, but with that said, there are examples of competence everywhere and you just have to compare yourself to the other people. And, and whatever it is that you want to get good at. And also you have to make a determination. It's like, is that worth copying? Like, do I want to be able to do a, a power clean as well as an Olympic lifter? Maybe, but I mean, for what purpose? Is that worth copying? Obviously not. It's like, do I want to be a very proficient heroin abuser? Do, do, I, want to, do I want to copy uh, ultra marathon runners? Maybe some aspects of it, but not really. Because if a, a person's body can deal with those types of demands to run up for 100 miles, something's going wrong. Something's not going right. I don't, th I don't think there's something right about doing an ultra marathon. So you have to also classify what types of behaviors are worth copying and which ones aren't. And I'm trying, in, in all fairness, I'm trying to give the example to follow by. I'm, I'm failing at it all the time. I do the best that I can. But I'm working at it, man. It's difficult. And so... um the best recommendation I can give you if you're trying to understand, determine what progress is, is you have to make a determination on what you want, what do you, th what you think is functional, what's good, and then try and copy that. And then, uh, you have to assess yourself and, and do an honest evaluation on where you're at. You look at somebody's butt and if their butt looks more symmetrical than yours, you got to think, well, why, why is their spine position in a way that's going to like get, uh, get their glutes that big? And why is my, my, my spine positioned in a way that's got my glutes so small? You have to make honest evaluations of yourself and honest evaluations of the people that are around you. And that's not always comfortable. 
because people don't like making honest evaluations about their physical structure because you're pretty much talking about, you know, am I an ugly person or not? Nobody likes having to say that. Am I unattractive? Nobody likes having to say those things. So, um, I mean, those are just some, I, I'll get into that uh, sometime in the future. Well, speaking about challenges, uh, someone asked what your biggest challenges were training grapplers. Getting them, getting them not to move around the same joints they always like to move around. That was mainly it. They they have a a preferential way of operating, and for me, breaking that pattern. Like if you guys look at Kyle Dake, the way that he wrestled back in I think two thousand what was it seventeen, two thousand sixteen, and then look at his recent matches, he doesn't look the same. That did not. Pablo, you were right there with us, with me. You and I were right there with Kyle trying to get him to do these things, to get Kyle light on his feet. It's not as easy as just telling somebody, hey, move on your toes. His coaches for ages told him, you need to move more. You need, you need to move more. You need, you need to keep moving. You need to keep me, being able to move. And it's just like, how can you tell somebody to move when, they're, when their spine is saying, I don't want to move? I don't care what you do. I'm just going to stand here. And then when I grab you, I'm going to defend takedowns. Like if it's nothing because I'm Kyle Dake and I'm a stud. It's like, how do you get somebody to not initiate that impulse? Well, there's lots and lots and lots of layers to the onion that you have to peel before you can get that. And, uh, and it's not just mental, uh, not just physical and mental problem, but it's like with, with the athlete, it's how many of those do I have to get over myself? That was an uncomfortable process. That was, that sucked. Yeah, of course. And it's just like, oh, look, I'm doing everything that I know. And here he is still feeling the pain. So on my end, when it comes to like grapplers, I'm like thinking, how do I prevent them from doing what they already do? Like, especially with wrestling, you can't escape things uh, with wrestling. You can't cheat wrestling. If you don't know what you're doing with wrestling, you're going to get hurt no matter what. You can cheat jiu-jitsu much easier than you can cheat wrestling there's way more rest involved with jiu-jitsu there is no rest involved with wrestling it's like when they go they go and it's just it's 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 amazing it's amazing that they do what they do i think it's i think it's probably the coolest sport out there as it relates to biomechanics the 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 proficiency that those guys have is incredible and i have uh i just think wrestling is a really really cool sport i think it's awesome but uh, <laughs> trying to get, uh, especially freestyle wrestling, Greco is a little bit easier to cover the, the aspects of Greco-Roman wrestling because there's no leg attacks. But when you start talking about getting people into deep knee, deep ankle, dor- deep knee flexion, deep ankle dorsiflexion, deep hip flexion, woof, and trying to help have them still hold structural integrity during those contexts, that's those situations, me solving those problems are what have pretty much proven my worth in my field. But my God, you want to talk about the difficulties that are involved with that. So realistically, the most difficult part of getting a grappler to change is picking out their sticking point and then actually being able to do something about it. And that is freaking difficult, especially if they've already been successful doing what they do already. To get them to be like, hey, stop doing what you're doing and then do what I do, what I'm telling you to do. You see this guy, this other wrestler. Yeah, you have to. Co- there were so many times back in the day when I used to train MMA fighters, and I'm like, you know, your hands are a bit suspect. 
I'd tell this to like really pretty well-known guys and man, they would get offended. I'd get a few that were really, really offended by me saying that. And, uh, you know, they didn't want, they didn't want to, I'm like, you shouldn't throw your punch like this. You shouldn't move your feet like this. You should do this with it. So that way it makes it easier. And they'll be like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But I like doing things the way that I like doing them. Now, now I don't get people second guessing me because now I can be like, because when I teach somebody something now, they'll be like, Whoof, holy, wow, wow. They'll hear the pad, the pads crack and they'll be like, uh, okay, I'm not going to shut you down. But dude, I had to go through hellfire in order to deal with that. Like if, if I could think about striking mechanics and the amount of modules that I've created around striking mechanics, there's probably about a, a hundred mod, uh, modules that I've had to develop to get striking mechanics. You guys are probably seeing my boxing get a lot better. There's a lot that I've had to <laughs> uncover mechanically speaking to get that to happen. Cause I've been trying to box better for a long time. I gave up on it pretty much for a while. Cause I'm like, dude, there's just, this is just a bit too much. And some of them, I was like, you know what? I figured out enough of it to where I'm like, I, maybe I need to move on to other things. And I did that. But um, what's so difficult about getting somebody who's successful at what they're doing to change is that they've already been attained some level of success doing what they've been doing. And to get them to make that change is really tough. You have to, you have to like, I could probably get athletes to do it now because I've, I've earned that trust. But if you're just an up and comer trying to get somebody to do that, you're going to have to go, th- you're going to have to fail many, many times before a person's really going to listen to you. That's just talking about that earlier a little bit, uh, as far as like you kind of put in the work and you got into the position that you are now. Yeah. I earned. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and that's a big thing. It's like, you have to earn a position. And so on my end, it's like, at, at, there was a while, like, I just got so fed up working with athletes because they just wouldn't listen to me. I'd be like, dude, you need, like, they would listen to me. They would feel better listening to me. And then, they would go back to doing what they did. And then they would hurt themselves. And then I'd have to be the physical therapist that would come in and fix them because their regular physical therapist or massage therapist couldn't actually fix them. And so then I pretty much just became a physical therapist and I could have made a great career out of that, made lots of money doing it. Just being like, you know what? I'll be the physical therapist to the professional athlete. I'm like, that's not what I want to do. I want to actually like correct their movement dysfunctions. That's, that's what I'm here to do. And so they wouldn't let, they wouldn't allow me to do that. So I took a hiatus. I didn't take a hiatus. I retired from training athletes. I was like, I'm not going to do it. When Kyle Dake and Kyle Dake has talked about this publicly, he reached out to me multiple times and I'm like, go train with Johnny. And then Johnny was somewhat unavailable or whatever. I'm like, I'm not going to train you, bro. I don't care who you are. I've had a lot of athletes reach out and say, you know, I'd like to train. I have, there's so many athletes now that I know would kill to train with me. Lots of them. And they'd be like, you know, this guy's like, he's because I've earned my position. Essentially. I've like, I've had to go through the hellfire to build the reputation that I have. But for a while, I, I wasn't, nobody was listening to me. I would tell them, don't do that. Because if you do that, that's what causes your pain. That's what causes your injury. Don't move like that. You need to move like this so you don't feel the pain. And since they didn't listen, I was like, whatever. But then Kyle was very persistent. And that persistence showed up when he would uh, train with me. And he would just listen to me. And he would listen. And there was times where obviously I would teach him the wrong things. And I'd be like, yep, that's my bad. I covered the wrong thing. I didn't teach the right thing. That's my bad, my fault. I need to make an adjustment. Sorry, I screwed you up there. And he'd be like, that's all right. It's like, bro, like, what, what the hell was I going to do? It's kind of like, what am I going to, like, what am I going to do? So he was patient. Fortunately, he was patient with me. The, the, when, what, what do they say? 
when the right student arrives, I guess the teacher uh, freaking pops up. I don't know what the, what the say, saying, how the saying goes, but um, I think Kyle was the student that I, that I, at least the athlete representation that I had been looking for for quite some time. And uh, fortunately, he popped up and, uh, you know, we learned a lot of things together. And I, the funny thing is I never would have thought it'd be wrestling. I always thought it would be striking, but I'm glad it turned out to be wrestling because it was so outside of my um, wheelhouse. Like for me, striking, since FP, the first derivative of FP, like where it all started was boxing. Boxing was what, what the fundamental uh, influencer was of, uh, of uh, FP. You know, like back in the day, people, you'd see boxers like doing their thing. And like, you know, they'd be, they'd be, uh, punching and then you'd see their training and they'd be doing sit-ups and chopping wood. And I'm like, why are you chopping wood if you're a boxer? I'm like, there's certain aspects of it that incorporate hand move, head movement. But when you're chopping, your head really isn't moving. It's your arms moving. When do you chop down at somebody like that? I'm like, wouldn't it make more sense to put a pulley behind you and then like load that and then punch? Wouldn't it make more sense to grab a pulley and pull it back to elicit the, like, you know, the either the recoil on the punch or the, the forward motion of your left hand. I'm like, I thought about that a long time ago. I was like, huh, what? You know, like, um, I forgot what prompted that, but that, that was my wheelhouse. That's, that's how I thought about, uh, most of what I do as it relates to training. It came from boxing and kickboxing and MMA, but mostly boxing. And so I think maybe that's a lot of where, where my vision of precision came from because in boxing, you have to be very precise with what you do. If you're going to throw a punch and move your head, it's like, one small little mistake and your your lights are being put out. So boxing, I think, is probably the, the the sport with the highest precision as it relates to combat of any other sports that are out there. Just because it's like you eliminate so many variables and when you just have the hands, you have to do the, you have to throw the hands perfectly. But um, yeah, with with wrestling, it turned out to be the best sport I could have gotten exposed to. Even it was even though it was like the least interesting sport, but. Kyle, in all fairness, man, he, he made it happen. He makes it happen. Like I, I don't train many. I, I got my, my boy, uh, my boy, Johnny Eblen. He elicits very similar tendencies to that of, uh, of, uh, Kyle Dake. And, uh, when, when I get an athlete saying, Hey man, uh, like I'm a fighter and I'm trying to get better. I've been doing this pro and I don't like, I'm not sure what to do. It's like, what does this contralateral step press look like? And I'm like, damn, you're already a stud. And you're humbling yourself well enough to take some critique. That's unusual. That's how Johnny Eblen came at it with me. And the guy's a freaking stud. Jesus. Guy's a freaking animal. Just a complete stud. Of, I mean, I, I, it's cool to say that somebody's a great champion or whatever. But it's like Kyle and Johnny are just, they're, 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 they're really good athletes. But as people, you just see how they try you see the self-honesty associated with their, with their demeanor. And you're like, damn, okay, I get it. Cause they have something to lose. Kyle and Johnny have something to lose. If they, if they take my advice and it goes wrong, they have something to lose. And that's where you really find out a lot about a person. It's like, if you got nothing to lose and you say, Hey man, I'm going to give you all this commitment now and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, bro, you got nothing to lose. What, what do I care? But if these guys have something to lose and then they give me that kind of commitment, I'm like, damn. So it's not to say that I won't train athletes. I know I'm jumping all over the place with what I'm talking about. But um, uh, with that said, uh, I saw you just scratch off a question. Is that... That was just the one that you guys didn't answer. Okay. So, um, yeah. As it relates to grappling, going back to that same topic about grappling. Um, yeah. The best thing I would suggest is that you try and find out what an athlete's default dysfunction is with their movement and then try correcting it. And, and then 
go through the <laughs> go through the odyssey of getting them to actually listen to you when you when you put it on video and you're like you see when you did this and then like being like oh okay i need to do something about it have fun with that and then try changing it and then you're going to understand my pain maybe they'll listen to you maybe because they're starting to look at me now they might be more inclined to listen to you when you say it but then you have to hope that you're giving them the right information which is a whole other ballpark i think i'll do one or two more and then we'll call it a day uh, if you're, if you are correcting exercises accurately, should it be easier to get into and stay into a more neutral, relaxed posture? Yeah, of course. That's the idea. It's like the idea is that I don't like, and that's one thing that a long time ago, people would be like, so you're saying I got to stand like this all the time when I'm, sh when I would teach them a standing neutral position. I'm like, no, dude. The idea is that you exercise so you fall into a better default. It's it's so layered and so complicated. And posture itself is like, I'll, I'll go into that the next podcast. I'll get into posture because, man, posture has a really, really bad reputation. But you know why posture has a really bad reputation? Because nobody knows how to correct it. When you, don't know, when you know nothing on how to correct it, you're going to be like, well, you can say one of two things. You can say... One, I don't know how to do it, which as a fitness professional, that's a suicide mission if you want to actually maintain some sense of legitimacy. Or two, you can say, oh, it's not important, which is what most people said, which what most people have said for the longest time. And they continue to kind of try and keep denying it. But it's like, no, it's like, it's real. It's, it's not that it's kind of important. It's probably the most important factor there is in biomechanics as it relates to human beings. Because it's like literally the determinant as to, uh, as to how symmetrical you're going to be in your motion i could tell so much about a person and their degenerative traits their degenerate you know the, the most telling thing that you can that you can use without like looking at many other things is just looking at a person's facial posture and then saying oh when i can look at a person's face and then tell them or like i already tell that vertebra is going to be you know t8 is going to be shifted back on that person and t8 is going to be shifted forward on that person based upon how their mandibular position and their cranial position is when you can do that you can fix people so much faster but if you don't know how to read posture then guess what you're going to be like yeah it's not that you may if you're in denial you're going to say it's not that important so um what was the question again regarding posture Yeah, for sure. And I was, I was just ranting about posture. It's like, yeah, obviously yeah, you should definitely, if you're moving correctly, you should fall into a better posture. But if you can't even control a basic posture to begin with, that's, that's the, the complexity of this. If you can't control basic posture, you're never going to fix posture. It's like, it's a part of the, it's a part of the process. It's, it's like, it's a fundamental part of the process. If you can't cue it while you're standing, how are you going to cue it while you're doing something even more complicated called moving? How are you going to pull that off? You can't like, you can't be like, oh yeah, well, I'm just going to skip to moving. And if I move better then I'm going to stand better automatically, it doesn't work that way because you're talking about variances of complexity and standing is much easier than running. So it's like, you, you can't just, you can't say, well, you know what, before I squat, uh, a thousand pounds or no, wait a minute. I'm just going to skip to squatting a thousand pounds and a thousand pounds is going to correct my squat when I'm moving a hundred pounds. I'll just speak on like fitness trainers perspectives. It's like, no, you got to scale your way up. The degree of difficulty has to scale up. You can't just skip steps and assume that you're going to correct something uh, because, uh, you know, like, oh, I moved correctly. Now I'm, you, you can't do something more complicated and expect for it to just correct something basic. There's so many people that have done that. People that do like the, the outdoor, uh, like 
like the, 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 how would I put it? Like the animal style movements that are outside, they'll be like, oh yeah, our stuff improves posture because we go through all these movements and whatnot, these undulations and these undulatory patterns are the ones that end up uh, creating balance between both sides of the body. And then you look at them and a few years later, their bodies are just deteriorating. They're calling themselves old men at 40 years old. And I'm like, I'm 36 years old. I'm like, bro, when I'm, when I'm 40, I'm going to be way better off than I am right now. Substantially better. Because I'm like, because I've worked on my posture. I didn't get ahead of myself. Guess what? I get to experiment with handstands. I get started experimenting with all sorts of stuff because I didn't get ahead of myself. That's one of the most damaging things that people do is they get ahead of themselves. And the next thing you know, you hear them arguing outside because they just can't keep their life in order because they get ahead of themselves. Before, before they start dealing with uh, exogenous use of things that alter their hormones, uh, they go straight, or before they can deal with the endogenous production of certain chemicals in their body, they skip to the exogenous in, in hopes that that's going to solve the problem. And it doesn't. And so they just keep coping. One more. One more? 